Welcome to a virtual view where we talk about telehealth, healthcare, and everything in between. Today, I'm joined by Bernie Benassa, who you may have heard in a recent episode that we just published on remote patient monitoring. Bernie has agreed to do a part two where we're going to dive into a little bit more on the return on investment for remote patient monitoring technology, as well as how to overcome hurdles when you're implementing the technology. So Bernie, thanks so much for joining us for this two-part episode. I appreciate the opportunity here to participate again. And there's so much information to share about RPM and the virtual care components around RPM that, yeah, I could probably write a few volumes, but I do appreciate the opportunity to, to come back for part two. Absolutely. And we talked a lot about what is remote patient monitoring. We talked about some basics when it comes to how are you reimbursed for it? What are some of the benefits? But for organizations that are looking to implement a remote patient monitoring program for the first time, what really is the business case that an individual can make when they want to stand up a remote patient monitoring program for the first time? Yeah, great question. And that, that is a key component and one of the key hurdles, I think, in just investing in an RPM program. Because once you do an RPM program, you really have to jump in with with, with both feet into the deep end. And uh, it's a commitment to a program, a team that gets involved with care management and a, a service to your patient consumers, right? Once you put it out there, you have to make sure that it's well-designed, you can stand behind it and that it's sustainable and scalable. Really business case around RPM is commonly built around a few key components like uh, cost savings would be the first that comes to mind, financial incentives tied to quality scores, typically reimbursement revenues, and even revenues related to patient volume, patient, and even improvements in patient volume, depending on what type of provider you may be working with, the relative importance of these are going to change or differ depending on the type of organization providing the service. And if the payment model is fee for service versus alternative value-based care, so that can really dictate a different angle when it comes to ROI, but ROI provens can commonly built, be built around either scenario. So the first to look at is really cost savings. And that's what we find most service providers look at first and are motivated first to, especially if it's a hospital-based system or a larger health system, is cost savings from reduced hospitalizations and reduced ER visits. And when you employ an RPM solution, the care team is more aware of how a patient is trending and they can intervene to head off an avoidable utilization event. That could be a hospital admission. It could be a readmission, an ER visit, or other types of high cost types of care, including procedures. When you look at hospitalization stays that cost for a chronic conditions stay or a serious chronic illness stay, hospitalizations can run from about fifteen dollars to $20,000 per episode. And ER visits could run about $2,000 on average for those types of conditions. So when you look at that, RPM solutions and their ability to reduce those can really have a positive ROI fairly quickly. With a recent project I've worked with at a large physician network in Michigan, so it's in the UMTRC region, they'd started using an RPM solution 
in a non-fee-for-service model. It was a shared risk value-based care model. And our experience with them was that they crossed or came very came to the point of the break-even point for their entire annual spend for their covered patient group, which just two avoided hospital readmissions in less than six months of program usage. In a very short turnaround time there, just by, this was two different patients avoiding a hospital readmission because they caught the negative trend for this patient using our, our RPM solution and were able to intervene and basically paid for the program for the entire year for all of the other covered patients in their program. So it, it can be pretty powerful when you see those kind of results <clears throat> in avoiding a hospital utilization and ER visits. The next component to look at in ROI is financial incentives tied to quality scores. These may not be realized upfront, but they clearly become part of the equation in a large way. One of the largest incentives or kind of opportunities, if you want to call that, or you can look at it in a converse way, disincentives in the form of penalties is tied to a hospital score on readmissions. There was a recent study by, I believe it was Kaiser Health that said all, up about half of all hospitals it was very recent. It's a 2022 report, but half of all hospitals are being assessed a penalty by CMS. And that penalty is averaging about a 3% reduction in their Medicare reimbursement payments for an inpatient stay. If you look at the average penalty per hospital, that was about just a little bit over 200K per hospital. And if you add up all the penalties for all of those hospitals that were getting penalized, the amount totals about $500 million. So it's a large amount of penalties, but also a large amount of savings to CMS. So CMS is capturing that revenue. And then they're using a lot of that to redistribute it back to the highest performing hospitals. So there's a way to be incentivized to even exceed the national thresholds and get a bigger share of the Medicare payment pool. So. When you look at RPM, there's been lots of published journal articles that have proven that RPMs had a direct influence on reducing readmissions and actually then also affecting the quality metrics and scores, right? You find then that many organizations make an admission that use RPM to reduce the readmissions and the penalties associated with those readmissions, keeping more in their spend and again, even getting a greater score to even beat the national threshold and get a bigger share of the withheld payment pool. So that, that can be a big incentive using RPM. Probably the next component to look at, and probably the most complicated as well as reimbursement revenues. So if a provider's programs are set up correctly, they can actually be fairly lucrative from a reimbursement perspective. Providers, we talked about different care models that CMS has defined and different CPT codes that could be used for billing in our first part on this RPM discussion. But providers can take advantage of even multiple billing code models and even combining the use of those care models for the same patient during the same monthly billing cycle. And when even just RPM on its own, even when it's done, it'll it can likely have the cost of the RPM technology solution completely offset by the monthly allowable amounts that are available from CMS for monthly use of the patient device kits. 
Then you can layer on the billable time that a provider incurs to for, per patient for the care of the patient for RPM, which can be as much as around $100 a month if they're doing a couple of sessions a month with the patient that are allowed. And if you then also layer in chronic care management on top of that, which can be also used for the same patient at the same time as RPM, that could be another $100 in patient revenue per month. <clears throat> so it's quite possible that a provider can bring in over $200 a month per patient and additional revenue per month after already getting reimbursed for the patient devices and that those get already covered in the cost of the reimbursement available for those, for that part of the program. So it can be fairly lucrative from a revenue perspective, but when you look at that, you also have to look at, okay, what additional costs might I be incurring as a provider? And organizations do have to factor in the additional cost, mainly in the area of staff resources that perform the RPM activities. But when you grow and scale an RPM program, you could, you will actually find, or it has been found, nurses are actually able to handle a larger volume of patients in a virtual care model than they would have been able to if all of the visits were being done in person. So there actually becomes a point on the curve where your productivity is actually going up as you scale an RPM program with the nurses can manage a larger number of patients at one time. So most RPM vendors will offer a monitoring service so that you can outsource that service. And a lot of times, again, depending on scale, it could be less costly to outsource that service than to do it in-house using nurses. And it can free up the staff to do other uh, additional preventative and uh, even more emergent type of care as needed and be just create a more responsive environment for the patients in general. And probably the last item to think about in terms of ROI of RPM is can be seen in, in patient volume improvements. It, this could really be achieved with because RPM brings with it the promise of better patient engagement, which leads to better retention and then can lead to better volume growth, less loss of patient volume. And RPM has been proven in studies as well to increase patient engagement, accessibility, and that helps with patient retention. And we're done with uh, different digital first models, national models that are entering the fray now and the new threats that are coming from these large care entities, whether it be Amazon or Walmart or Teladoc or whoever, that these models are starting to penetrate different communities across the country and providers that have been entrenched in those communities need to amp up their game to keep a heightened patient experience and satisfaction that can be enabled by RPM to market to the patients to keep their patients and even grow their patient volume using more of a high touch model. And uh, yeah, that's a good summary. I think of most of the points that fall into our ROI of RPM. Appreciate that, Bernie. It's always important to take into consideration not only the clinical outcomes that can come from being able to provide some of these care to patients. We have a lot of conversations with providers all across our four state region. And one of the biggest barriers that they tend to run into is if we're going to put in some money to buy new technology, create these new workflows, we want to make sure that we're going to be able to recoup that because that can be some of the biggest threats to 
when you're creating a new service line to make sure that it's going to be sustainable long term so that once you start to provide that service for patients, you're going to be able to provide it long term and be able to continue to sustain it. So thank you for that comprehensive walkthrough of the business case, as well as the return on investment for utilizing remote patient monitoring technology so that individuals that are trying to have these conversations in their organizations, because it has a lot of moving parts, you have to get a lot of people on board. So having a good clinical basis, but also a strong business case is going to be important to really getting your program started to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. And making that transition from pilot to full operational model is a line that a lot of uh, providers have not yet really executed well yet. And that is a, there's a lot of pilots that are out there that are stuck because of the uncertainty again around how do I make that transition to scalability and fully commit, right? And that takes working with a, an established RPM vendor and those that have walked that walk with, with providers before. So when we talk about implementing these kind of solutions, I wonder from your perspective, is this something where it can be a straight out of the box solution for folks? Or is this something that does require a lot of pre-planning and groundwork laid beforehand? Yeah, great question and a good way to frame it. Definitely requires a ton of pre-planning and involving all the right stakeholders in that. And it's funny that you use the words out of the box too, because a component of a RPM vendor solution kind of has to be pre-built and proven and available out of the box in a way that shows that there's not a huge, uh, we'll build it while we're flying, kind of we'll figure it out as we go, because there are some new RPM vendors out there who really haven't been in the mix that long, might have some great solutions, but really haven't got that full support and operational model and developed a large, extensive suite of really almost ready to use out of the box type care solutions. So yeah, interesting term there, but yeah. So talking a little bit more about some of the challenges and, and the hurdles for RPM success and, and even some of the barriers to adoption and why we've seen some programs have difficulties. I can go through some of those. It, it is a very challenging endeavor. When you look at a provider, they're used to providing care inside their four walls and their even the financial model is set up for time in the office visiting with patients, right? So this model, of course, starts to break down the walls and go into a full-on virtual mode. But even beyond that, you're losing, you're, you, it's a very uncertain environment. You're losing that control of the situation where now you're in the most uncertain of environments in a patient's home and you're providing a service out into inside their home, which is a very intimate place and a very, very variable environment from patient to patient. So you really have to have a good foundation and a good solid plan in place to, to handle some of the operational issues that are invariably going to happen when you go into direct consumer type of care models in the places where they live and work and play. But if it is designed and operated well, an RPM program can produce pretty significant results, that, some of which I talked about before. But one of the big hurdles at RPM, and the one that I think gets a lot of folks stuck, is how is the provider going to get paid? And even if the organization understands a bit more about, okay, how is this going to be financially justified? The providers themselves, physicians, et cetera, have to be on board. It has to fit with their payment model and knowing how they're going to get reimbursed. And while you, we did talk about reimbursement and how it could be viewed as universal and ready and in place, 
but really that's only at the federal level and it's only for Medicare patients typically. So you really then have to look at, okay, my, I'm probably not serving all Medicare patients. You're probably going to mix Medicare, Medicaid, private pay and that or commercial insurance. So you do have to also look at the state level reimbursements for Medicaid and for private payer. And uh, typically it's a patchwork, right? Of different evolving policies per state, per quarter, however often they're getting defined or new bills are getting passed. But some good news is that 30 states have already uh, have favorable legislation in place, specifically talking about RPM coverage. And that's, so that's even beyond just telehealth, right? So they actually have language to cover RPM usage. And if you think about, uh, for example, here in Indiana, uh, regulations cover live telehealth, but not store and forward telehealth, but they do support RPM. So it's a bit of a, possibly a miss some gaps in the picture there, but, but RPM, which is typically defined outside of telehealth as a separate entity, is why we see that defined sometimes differently and outside of telehealth and store and forward, which are both parts of telehealth. But Indiana also has a requirement as an example, that in addition to Medicaid, that private payers have to cover the same services as Medicare. So Medicaid and private payers have to cover the same services as Medicare but there's not yet a requirement for payment parity so that the private payers and the Medicaid don't necessarily have to reimburse at the same level as the same rate, but they do have to cover the service. So that's an example, I'll turn the spotlight here a little bit on Indiana as an example. So that's where we're talking from here. Let's see some additional hurdles and challenges might include, I'll just run through a few things here that come to mind, but selecting the right RPM solution that can grow with your needs and it can handle a diversity of environments and care programs. I think we talked a little bit about different rural and hard to reach environments and how do you ensure equity across your population? Because most commonly, and unfortunately the highest need patients are also the hardest to reach and living in the most remote areas and have lack of access. So how can you get a, pro a solution that can scale and address your population to truly turn that corner for those need it most? Another critical component would be involving all the key stakeholders early on in the pro planning process and having them all agree on programs, objectives, and supporting the need, giving the support really needed to execute a fully on a program and to commit to it. Part of that is the program objectives and target metrics really need to be made clear up front. And, how, and then how are you going to measure those and know how you're doing against the objectives? You also should put in place a phasing and sustainability plan to make sure that you can grow long-term and that the operational needs can continue to be supported. And then you have to look at, of course, where does that funding come from? Is funding only temporary? Can you get annual new funding coming around, whether it's through grants or some other types of internal funding? And then as far as implementation goes, one of the most challenging areas is around patient adherence, right? So you could have done everything perfectly in terms of your planning and your execution and implementation, but you're the wild card you're still dealing with this patient adherence. So the ways you want to make sure you plan for a high level of adherence is it really starts at the program outset with screening and selecting the right appropriate candidate targets you want to look at claims data and a bunch of other types of factors, then you want to have qualification, check the box areas as to whether a patient makes for a good compliant monitoring patient. You'll also need to have a patient-friendly outreach process. It's got to have a clear presentation of the expectations and the benefits for the patient. You want to ensure that the onboarding process goes smoothly. 
And beyond that, you'll need an experienced team of care managers. You just can't round up a bunch of med surge or floor nurses or something and expect them to operate almost like a call center with the right kind of dialogue and scripts to handle patients being cared for at home, which is a totally new environment for a lot of nurses. We've seen a lot of initial adopters actually hire nurses from the home health care side because of their experience dealing in home health environments. And that can be a good place to start. But so you want to fully engage, uh, guide the patient, educate them on the care plan as they go along, highlighting successes, being real positive. And then really your customer support has to be on task for handling usability issues so that interest is not lost from frustration of using the device. One thing to keep in mind though, is that RPM, it's not for everyone. Some patients just won't want to cooperate, whether you know that early on and they decline up front or whether it's in the middle of a program. And of course, it should never be used in place of in-person care when that type of setting is needed and a patient or if the patient really prefers that. <clears throat> so once you've mastered all that, then you got to keep providers and physicians engaged and on board because sometimes they're the, the toughest folks to drag into the uh, new change model of providing care and making them feel comfortable with this new model. Yeah, those are great points, Bernie. And of just some different hurdles and some things to think through as you implement a new remote patient monitoring platform. Just want to call out some of the similarities of there, there are some things similar between remote patient monitoring and rolling out a telehealth solution that you're going to want to be aware of. And you hit on several of those points, like you want to make sure that you have your medical providers are bought in, they're comfortable with whatever platform you're using, software you're using. Um, you want to make sure you identify the appropriate patients for the service. It doesn't necessarily mean that, let's say you have a congestive heart failure program that your remote patient monitoring technology is mostly focused on. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single patient that has congestive heart failure is necessarily going to be a fit for that program. You need to have some understanding of and collecting some of that patient feedback. Is this working for you? Is this beneficial? Having some of those things in place are going to be important for the longevity of your program. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you mentioned some of the reimbursement pieces and the one positive trend that we've seen in our region. So Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Illinois is some of our states, when it comes to Medicaid, there has been positive movement when it comes to providing more coverage and payment for services for RPM. So Ohio, they now have a lot more reimbursement for remote patient monitoring for Medicaid. And Indiana actually just released a bulletin in May of this year. It used to be predominantly home health care agencies were the only organizations that could furnish and bill for RPM consistently. Now they're opening it up to more provider types and certain patients, as long as they meet the criteria that's out outlined by Indiana Medicaid and a prior authorization is completed prior to that patient receiving the service, they can now receive those RPM services, even if it's not a home healthcare agency who's providing the care. We still have a long way to go, but at least we're beginning to see some of that positive traction on the Medicaid standpoint, as we've seen a lot of reimbursement opportunities when it comes to Medicare. Yeah, that's great to hear about some of the new, new advancements there in, in regulatory stance then as far as types of entities that can bill for them. That seems to be changing all the time, but good to hear. And it's changing even with Medicare with some new 
some of the new care models that are coming out, like remote therapeutic moderate monitoring even. Absolutely. Yeah, we do our best to try and keep up with all of that. I do have to put in a plug that we do have a remote patient monitoring handout where we kind of catalog some of the basic information when it comes to remote patient monitoring that's located on our website. We do our best, but it is a moving target. Depending on which day you ask, that policy may have changed recently, but we do our best to keep on top of that. But in the spirit of change and evolving, which RPM definitely is, how is RPM evolving as a technology and what's next for this exciting care model? Yeah, yeah, Cam, just like you mentioned, <clears throat> while there's been a lot of changes on the regulatory front, th those are really happening even at, at the same time as RPM. Kind of new developments, new technologies, new capabilities are being infused into RPM. So the, yeah, it's an area of rapid change. We're seeing in addition to what we've been talking about, some of the new care models that CMS has been defining. And the good news is new barriers are being broken down pretty much every year. We had like new care models introduced just this past January for remote therapeutic monitoring, which we covered in the first session. So that's brand new in terms of types of providers and other care models and new billing codes that could be introduced. So there's a lot of change there that we're seeing. So that's very promising for broader use of RPM. And another area we're seeing some additional exciting evolution is around continuous monitoring and wearables and primarily also the FDA cleared versions of those types of devices, right? It's still pretty early stage and providers are still trying to address the value and the use cases and try to understand those because technology is outrunning the healthcare provider ability to manage the information that can come from these devices, but that's typically the case with technology companies, right? The, the key thing is that providers need to understand uh, if we did do continuous monitoring or have wearables, are we set up to handle potentially as much as 24 by seven monitored data? It's even a tough hurdle to climb to even just see the single point in time data events that are being patient generated through RPM. But you could start with looking at it from, there could be real value or benefits to what we call segment of time monitoring, as opposed to thinking that it's all or nothing thing. I either take a static reading at this moment, or I got to suck down 24 seven flow of data, but looking at more from the perspective of segment of time, there can be a lot of value in that. Some use cases around, around that might include some that which we're seeing, like even the hospital at home models, right? Even things around activity tracking for periods of time. Even just something as, as short as climbing a set of stairs, how does your vitals change? Looking at maybe sleep monitoring over periods of falls detection uh, during certain times of day, interrelationships between both activity that a patient might be doing and what physiological measurements are registering over a period of time. So there's a lot of use cases that can be looked at and can add a better, more informative piece to the story and the picture over just a single moment in time with it, without needing full 24 seven continuous monitor. Some other leading edge technology I'd say that we're seeing and, and we're seeing some RPM <clears throat> vendors investing in is really starting to look at AI and machine learning to further enhance that picture of a patient's current condition and be more predictive about a direction that they're trending in. So when you can take advanced technology like that and be able to have simultaneous processing of many more data variables beyond just simply the physiological data that's collected from the devices, you can then start to see a risk-based 
assessment and prediction of a likelihood of a negative event or an exacerbation of a patient's condition. The types of variables that could be monitored beyond just the physiologic data could be qualitative answers to surveys, right? It could be compliance. It could be medication adherence. It could be other types of events around social determinants of health, household setup, things of that nature. You really could look at the living environment, even food insecurities, access to transportation, whether it's a family member to help out at home and those types of things. <clears throat> then you can get a kind of a scored picture of the likelihood and the high risk, higher risk that might be prevalent with a certain patient over another. And then using scoring methodologies, you can actually then have the patient sorted in pretty much near real time according to the risk that could be changing at any point during a given day or trending in a negative direction so that you can get a informed care team more quickly and more accurately with actionable data as to which patients need more immediate attention. <clears throat> it's really these kinds of proactive tools and clinical decision support intelligence that's really going to change the game when it comes to patient care outcomes and the reduction of avoidable hospital events. So when we talk about this kind of stuff, inequalities that already exist in healthcare, telehealth can mitigate to those to an extent. But when we talk about RPM, which is something that can sometimes be somewhat costly to the consumer, have a bit of a high barrier of entry, does that still hold true? Is there still issues with health inequality in that sense? Well, yeah, I think health inequalities are present everywhere and quite extreme variances as well. RPM, again, still is just in its infancy and it has a ways to go. However, it does hold a lot of promise for being able to reduce the inequities. I do see it as a way to start leveling the playing field for those communi communities that have been the hardest to reach and that are the most difficult to <clears throat> manage from a care perspective. RPM allows for a view into the patient's living conditions. It allows for... Excuse <clears throat> me. It, it can, a well-rounded RPM solution can have different tools that are designed to address patients that are harder to reach. You could have, you could address the more tech-savvy patients with a tablet and a user interface that prompts them through an a, a electronic or digital experience. But then you're going to have patients that don't know how to use a tablet or won't use one or may not even have any internet connectivity. So you have to have tools where you can either have a cellular service embedded in the device. <clears throat> or just have a, <clears throat> or just even have a passive device that the patient doesn't engage with that might just be listening always on in the background, like an Alexa type of device, but that's for any uh, physiological data collection from medical devices that are attached to it. For any data that's captured, it just automatically sends it to the care team dashboard so that that can get around the user having to use technical device. We've, I've even seen solutions that use the wired phone line in the wall to be able to interact with the patient through an automated phone script to help reach that patient better and have them respond with data about their condition. And also just being able to even have different languages that can be more readily put into the mix, a press of a button or, or even just a prepackaged solution that's all in the native language of that particular patient without having to, you know, involve necessarily an interpreter full-time, real-time and have the cost associated with that. So I think there's many ways that RPM is starting to level the playing field with, with health equity and a long way to go still, but I think that there's great tools there to do that. 
Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that look into RPM. It was extremely informative, and I think that all of our listeners will really appreciate having such a thorough look at both the business end and some of the future implications of this technology. But thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you both. I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about RPM and it's an exciting area. So exciting to see it make a difference in your communities as well there in your region. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.